Thank you. Thank you so much, Zobia. Should we invite people to turn on their videos? Uh, what do you think? Okay, yes, sure. so if folks yes, want to do that, while you're doing that, I will get my screen share up. I hope without any mishap. <laughs> uh, there we go. I hope you can see that. Okay, wonderful. Thank you, so Zobia, for the wonderful invitation and for the very warm introduction. Um, and uh, thank you all from wherever you are Zooming in. It's a real pleasure. And I'm really, uh, I was really delighted to receive this invitation from uh, Zobia because it gives me an opportunity uh, to try out some new ideas, which is what seminars and forums like this are so wonderful for. Uh, and in particular, uh, as you can tell from the title of the talk, I wanted to use this as an opportunity to reflect on what it has meant for me as a professional historian to engage over the past couple of decades with a number of goddesses who have succeeded in capturing my imagination, in disturbing the terms of my engagement with official archives, in troubling the categories of my analyses, and in redirecting my work along paths that I had not envisioned before my unanticipated encounter with them, compelling me to become, if you will, somewhat goddess aware. This awareness, I have to say, oh, let me see, I'm having trouble. Okay, this awareness, I would insist, does not imply a nostalgia for religious forms that would oppress selves and impede reason, but rather a willingness to enter into productive assemblages with these goddesses and see where this willingness takes me. You have to take my word. I, had, I did not in the beginning seek out these multi-armed, miracle-working beings of my own accord. Instead, they have erupted over and again in the most unexpected ways and places, demanding my attention and simply refusing to go away. The title of my presentation, as I was telling my dear friend Marguerite Pernod, who's here, pays homage, of course, to Barney Cohn's wonderful essay, An Anthropologist Among Historians, first published in 1962. But as I offer these comments, I'm also inspired by Gayatri Spivak's confession in reflecting on her own engagement and on her surprising engagement with the goddess figure when she observed, quote, I am no longer beset by the need to occlude the traces of the irreducibly autobiographical in cultural speculations of this sort. So in that spirit, as I speak from the perch of my autobiographical self as a professional historian, I should also note that unlike scholars of religion who work on the Indian subcontinent, especially feminist scholars of Hinduism, for whom the goddess is indeed a staple, the respectable card-carrying historian of modern India typically maintains a discreet distance from these sites of affective intensity that punctuate the Indic life world. We keep them at bay on the margins of our disciplinary practice, invoking them in passing sometimes perhaps, but then moving on all too quickly, almost as if we are embarrassed about what to do about them if we incorporate them more centrally into our so-called objectivist narratives. 
A secular subject like history faces certain problems in handling practices in which gods, spirits, or the supernatural have agency in the world, writes Dipesh Chakrabarti, who I know is going to be speaking with you all in a couple of weeks. Secular histories, he argues, are usually produced by ignoring the signs of divine presences. Quote, such histories represent a meeting of two systems of thought, one in which the world is ultimately, that is in the final analysis, disenchanted, and the other in which the hu humans are not the only meaningful agents. For the purpose of writing history, the first system, the secular one, translates the second into itself, end quote. Or in other words, to use a Weberian phrase, the discipline is essentially robbed of gods as its good professional adherents conform to what Alfred Jell, following Peter Berger, characterizes as methodological atheism. So what happens when the professional historian willfully ceases to honor this great divide between the disenchanted worldly and the supernatural extraordinary, and instead allows the godly to power her narrative? As I explore this question, I also consider how the go goddess conspires and collaborates with the enchanting labor of the image to destabilize the certitudes of my prosaic social science analyses, compelling me into the visual turn upon which many historians have somewhat reluctantly, I should say, embarked. Visual work, in fact, spurs the disciplinary historian into a realm not constituted exclusively by words and texts, even as it reveals truths otherwise occluded by focusing entirely on the verbal. I make no case for the sovereignty of the visual image or the artwork. On the contrary, a shuttling back and forth between the discursive and the figural is critical, I would argue, to the method of the image historian. But this very act of shuttling has also convinced me of the capacity of the image to operate as an agent with power over people who believe in that power to invoke Peter Burke. Visual history has enabled me to puncture the received narrative and to append recognized truths, propelling me in the process into states of rapture that frequently accompanies new discoveries and revelations, if only momentarily, before the disenchanting professional protocols of the discipline inevitably reassert themselves. The goddess, as it were, seizes that window of opportunity before the historicizing imperative sets in and inserting herself into my narrative begins to fundamentally transform its tenor and texture. Even as I engage in this analysis, I am all too aware of the risk of opening the gates of the seemingly safe space of secular history to these divine beings who also power the imaginaries and politics of Hindu nationalism, which has dug itself deep into the Indian democratic landscape with its own brand of illiberal enchantment, especially in the past decade and more, as I don't have to remind this audience. 
I would insist nonetheless that the very act of historicizing, of putting the gods in their time and in their place is an important safeguard since fundamentalisms are by definition anti-historical. Nevertheless, I concede that this is a highly charged tightrope walk, but I hope to convince you in the next half hour or so that it is worth it as I introduce you briefly to these extraordinary beings who have taken over my professional life. The first to do so, and I'm going to go in the autobiographic, using the autobiographical vein, I'll begin in the beginning. Uh, the first to do so was Mother Tamar, referred to in Tamar in various ways, but most frequently as Tamar Thai, the language spoken by millions, both in India and in the diaspora, imagined as goddess, queen, and mother. She's a figure virtually unknown in the Tamil life world before the late 19th century when she appeared in, responses to, in response to various pressures of colonial modernity range, ranging from the pedagogical to the governmental in very many tantalizing ways in prose, poetry, and ultimately in pictures like several that you will see here in which cartographic objects such as the map and the globe are used to locate her in the world in a manner that I would argue is highly modern. Tamar Thai came into my life when I, was a graduate, when I was in graduate school at the University of California in Berkeley in the late 1980s, attempting to write a dissertation in the history department on the cultural politics of Tamil nationalism in 20th century India a respectable historical subject and a very lively one at that point. Virtually nothing in the existing scholarship on the subject then, especially in the English language, had prepared me for this embodied figure who I soon began to encounter everywhere in arcane literary musings, in mystical religious verses, in the populist poetry of the street, or almost all in Tamil and also in pictures such as these. If following the political theorist Jane Bennett, we agree that to be enchanted is to be simultaneously transfixed in wonder, or excuse me, simultaneously transfixed in wonder and transported by sense, to be caught up and carried away, Tamritai was certainly such an enchanted entity for those who sang and wrote about her and drew and painted her in very many different ways, but almost always wearing about her the allure of the sacred, signified most frequently by the halo and by, the, by her four arms, a most non-human way of being, you will agree. She was, however, curiously absent in any form in the published and unpublished government documents in the official state archives that historians of colonial and post-colonial India typically turn to, in fact, begin with. And yet, whenever I left the safe space of the familiar official archives with its privileging of the English language and of prosaic narratives and read Tamil poetry and song, I frequently felt as if I was in what Philip Fisher has called a moment of pure presence. Quote, thoughts, but also limbs are brought to rest, even as the senses continue to operate indeed in high gear. You notice new colors, discern details previously ignored. 
hear extraordinary sounds as familiar landscapes of, landscapes of sense sharpen and intensify. End quote. In other words, the contours of what I was so easily characterizing in prosaic social science language as Tamil nationalism began to blur and to take on other shapes and forms. Before long, I found myself abandoning the very framework of nationalism and identity politics with which I start, had started several years earlier and under whose mandate my doctoral dissertation did get written, but which I now found too inadequate to capture the array of passionate attachments between the deified, feminized and embodied language, a site of wondrous intensity and its enthralled speakers. So I went on to develop a new analytic of Tamil devotion or Tamil Patra, around which eventually my first book came to be written, albeit in the prosaic language of social science discourse and in English, but nevertheless now considerably leavened by the enchanting presence of the goddess in my narrative. I have come to see in retrospect that heeding the call of Tamiritai enabled me to respond to historian Prasenji Dwara's provocation to rescue history from the nation. In fact, perhaps even to hear that provocation and to the Pesh Chakrabarti's injunction not to write the history of our parts of the world as an already known history, something which has happened, already happened elsewhere and which is to be reproduced with local content. Ironically then, it is my entanglement with this goddess who appears by all accounts as a throwback to a timeless past, which pushed me to begin engaging with one of the most productive of turns in history writing in the subcontinent, namely the post-colonial, with its emphasis on allowing the unassimilable, the untranslatable and the different to reverberate through the empty homogenous and resolutely godless time of disciplinary history. My second protagonist is the much more well-known figure of Mother India, also known as Bharat Mata, the Indian National Territory, also imagined from the late 19th century, like Tamiritai, as a goddess, queen, and mother. This is also a figure that I had not set out to write about at all at first. My project had instead been conceived very much in response to the spatial turn in the social sciences and to the rise of what has been called geo-humanities to focus on the formation of cartographic culture in colonial and post-colonial India. When, however, I began to look at and for maps of India from the early 20th century outside the official archives of the state, it was soon apparent that the territory called India in colonial maps from the later 18th century or so onwards and laid out as empty cartographic space within the gridded frame of a network of latitudes and longitudes was also otherwise imagined as the body of mother India and gloriously pictured in all manner of visual media ranging from oils and acrylics to chromolithographs and even cinema. These are the products of the visual labors of artists who I have called barefoot cartographers. 
even with no obvious training in the use of maps, in the science of their production, or, their, or the aesthetics of their creation, these artists grab specialized artifact, one of the most prized innovations of the British Empire, and dislodge it from its official circles of circulation and use, and put it to affective purposes and projects that exceed those of science or of the state. So here are some of the ways in which uh, Indians were introduced to the figure of Mother India, especially those who did not go to school or take geography lessons in the company, map of India in the company of Mother India. She's either occupying and filling up the map or she's merging partially with it, or she's perched, seated or standing on it. And most scandalous of all, she dispenses with it entirely and comes to stand in herself for the geobody of India. Ironically, but not altogether surprising, given what we now concede about modern science's capa capacity to also generate new wonders, even ecstatic enchantment, the mathematized map of India, the proud artifact of a secular colonizing state and its sciences is in fact the essential guarantor of Mother India's novel persona as deity of national territory. The map is indeed the very ground on which, on which she appears and its presence assures her a distinctive identity, enabling her to not be readily confused with or mistaken for other ancestral goddesses like Durga, on whom she's clearly but not exclusively modeled. And yet in being hijacked for the cause of the goddess, the secular scientific map is also anthropomorphized. It's abstract space filled with the sensuous, feminine and quite Hindu presence of Mother India. In other words, one kind of enchantment is supplemented by another through the work of the barefoot cartographer. So in this manner, the goddess once again interrupted my disciplined pursuits and put pressure on a good social scientific question that I had been asking, cued by my reading of Benedict Anderson, Tong Chai, Vinnie Chakul, and a whole host of insightful scholars of cartographic science. Namely, why does the nation long for cartographic form? The cartographed figure of Mother India asserted itself to remind me that this yearning for form does not only take recourse to abstract mathematized reasoning that undergirds the sciences of cartography and geography, but it was also radically supplemented in 20th century India by the anthropomorphic, the sacral and the maternal. And yet being cast in the company of the goddess is not without considerable risk, even to the point of threat to one's life and limb, as also witnessed in the late career of Makbul Fida Hussein, India's most famous modernist artist, one of whose paintings on Mother India you see on your screen. Muslim though he might have been by birth, Hussein was drawn from early on to the plethora of Hindu deities, especially goddesses, who he painted on thousands of canvases with great artistic acumen, but also in a spirit of ecstatic abandon, not dissimilar to the love felt by the Bhakt or the devotee for a chosen deity. 
celebrated in the decades after Indian independence as exemplary of India's much wanted pluralism and secularism, these canvases returned to haunt the artist in darker times. The very presence of the goddess on their painted surface making him vulnerable to attacks from a resurgent Hindu nationalism with its own claims on the figure of Bharat Mata. This was especially the case when in 2005, that goddess made an insistent appearance on the work you see before you as a nude body in pain. The names of various Indian cities scattered across her torso with the words Bhopal and Gujarat, sites of industrial and communal genocide etched on her bare breasts. The resulting furor, as many of you may know, sent the 90-year-old artist into self-imposed exile from the country of his birth, work, and passions, never to return until his death in London in June 2011. But it also brought Hussein, a household name in the India I grew up in, into my professional orbit, again in a manner that I had never anticipated, compelling me to insert his images into a tradition that has accumulated over the past century and more around the hallowed figure of Mother India, but a tradition from which the work of Muslim artists like him have been radically cast out. Once again, the goddess had intervened to remind me that the historian of every generation has to rise and meet the obligation even at great risk to their own life and labor to recover the voices of past sufferers and therefore provide them with some small measure of secular salvation. To invoke the German theorist Walter Benjamin, also writing at a moment of great peril to his personal life and of course, world history. Indeed, Hussein's travels at the hands of illiberal I'm sorry, travails at the hands of illiberal forces caution us from assuming that goddesses, however enchanted they might seem, have had an easy journey through India's complex secular modernity, their anthropomorphic sovereignty left unchallenged. The mixed fortunes of one ancient goddess whose origins, unlike Bharat Mata's or Tamil Thais, stretch way back into the distant beginnings of religious life in the region is a case in point. I speak of the divine being variously known in Sanskrit and other Indian languages as Prithvi, Bhudevi or Bhumata, our earth imagined as an embodied female whose existence in Indic imagination has been documented from the earliest known Sanskrit texts. In pre-modern art practices, she has been especially manifest in the context of her rescue from the clutches of a cosmic demon by Varaha, the boar god and third incarnation of the Puranic super deity, Vishnu. Although there is considerable variation in how she's visualized across various media, as indeed in how her rescue is imagined, more often than not, Prithvi is cast as a beautiful demure female, obviously in awe of the immense male animal god who is her savior. So in contrast to the fierce mother goddesses of the Hindu pantheon, she's typically not multi-limbed. 
She's more humanoid than divine, which may account for some of how her fate unfolds in modernity. Fast forward to the closing years of the 19th century, and you can see the dramatic transformation in her representation when her sensuous female presence is displaced by another enchanted image, that of the earth as the perfect sphere of scientific modernity. In fact, over the course of the 20th century into the present, this is the standard manner in which Varaha's cosmic rescue mission is invariably visualized across numerous media, even in paintings and statues in, contem in contemporary temples. So sweeping is the displacement of the feminized earth by the inanimate spherical globe of scientific cartography. On the one hand, this is not surprising, for as I have documented, under the force of what I have characterized as pedagogic modernity in British India, the terrestrial globe began to circulate in ever widening circles as a proxy for our planet and a material stand-in for what I have called modern Earth. And yet, as I discovered in the course of my archival research, once again, when I left the frame of the official archives and went outside the context of colonial schools and educational missions, the globe centered on the map of India was also put to the service of transforming Hinduism's many deities into Indian gods as they came to be visualized sitting or standing on it, holding it in their hands, or simply placed in their company, as we see in this beautiful contemporary painting by Mithila artist Shalini Kumari, where the goddess and the globe fuse into each other. Similarly so, in a poster printed soon after Indian independence at a time when Prime Minister Nehru had firmly committed India uh, to a path of scientific uh, uh, modernity. Indeed, if we are to go by the title of the print, the viewer is called upon to see the gridded globe itself as Bhudevi or Goddess Earth. There is a strategic ambiguity at play here. So it seems to be that on the face of it, Hindu gods have once again prevailed in a modernizing, secularizing India with the, and with the aid and alliance of the very instruments of secular science that ought to have banished them in the name of secular reason. So just as the map of India distinguishes Mother India from a whole host of other goddesses, the terrestrial globe, the prized product of modern science, enables Prithvi to also carve out a distinctive look for herself, so she cannot be confused with the generic Hindu goddess. And yet this has not come without a cost, as we saw in the way the globe displaces her completely in some context, or as we see in this image of the controversial Tamil politician H.R. Raja trying to combat global warming one hot summer in Chennai by pouring water over a mounted school globe. So even as Prithvi's female form has to concede to a returned metal or plastic sphere, it is worth noting in Raja's action, the transfer of rites and rituals from the sacral body to the secular object placed on a lotus-shaped pedestal, no less. So geo-reverence has had to resort to some 
unexpected salvational strategies in the time of modern earth. So having been exposed thus to such surprising encounters and unexpected appearances with these more than human beings from the other side of the secular divide, so to speak, one might say that the ground was well prepared for me to be recipient to the hail of yet another goddess. And that's exactly what happened in October, 2006. So here she is in all her glory a brand new goddess generated on a computer screen in New Delhi and offered to the Dalits of India as their salvation from centuries of caste Hindu oppression. She takes the form, as you can see here, of the familiar Statue of Liberty, but relocated now to a new home, the map of India. It's critical Western, Northern and Eastern boundaries all undone. Her formal name, as you can see, is English, the Dalit goddess, but since her birth, precisely on October 25th, 2006, on the 206th birthday of Thomas Macaulay, the colonial administrator and Victorian historian, who's most associated with the pedagogical ascendancy of English in British India, she also came to be known the English, the Dalit goddess, in Hindi as Angrezi Devi, literally English goddess, and Dalit Ma, literally the Dalit mother. She's a product of the imagination of two Delhi-based Dalit men, the artist Shanti Swarup Baud, and especially the journalist and public intellectual Chandrabhan Prasad. Starting in 2004, but especially from 2006, Prasad spearheaded for a few years an intriguing although short-lived campaign to change the very terms of recognition for his fellow Dalits by proposing that English be their sole language and that his fellow Dalits should resolutely turn their backs on the caste-saturated spoken languages of India. As was the case of, with Tamil Thai and Mother India, the entry of English, the Dalit goddess, into my professional life compelled me to begin asking new questions, this time about the Dalit relationship to Indian languages, something that I had not considered at all in my early career, and the Dalit relationship to Indian nation space that is totally occluded in my work on Mother India. Once again, a goddess figure manifested itself to interrupt my ways of thinking, create trouble for my past arguments, and redirect the flow of my work in new productive ways. So for these reasons, I have not been persuaded to dismiss Prasad's short-lived project as a clever attention-getting gimmick or as performative excess, as some critics were wont to do. In their mimetic, mimetic uh, uh, capture of such an iconic image from, from New York all the way to, you know, to Northern India from their location there, I want to underscore Baud and Prasad's conspicuous refusal of markers that are uh, visibly identifiable with the Indic uh, universe, especially a Hindu Sanskritic symbolic world. This is what sets apart the iconography of the Dalit Devi from those fashioned for Tamil Thai or Bharat Mata. 
There are few subterfuges of antiquity at work here to borrow a phrase from political theorist Shudipta Kaviraj. Everything in this bodyscape with the singular exception of the Buddhist spoked wheel is largely novel to the iconographic landscape of pre-modern India and is a product of its recent experience of modernity. The fountain pen, the floppy hat, the computer monitor, even the map of India. The Dalit intellectual Gopal Guru once wrote, quote, Dalits have no nostalgia. What they remember is only the history of humiliation and exploitation, end quote. In an invitation letter that Prasad sent out to commemorate the 2009 English day, he declared, quote, we will deactivize our roots-based preferences, caste, language, religion, culture, food habits, and lifestyle. We will realize that nostalgia is a psychological weapon of the dominant. For at least a few hours, we will sign off from the wisdom that we have never asked for, end quote. So this critical anti-nostalgia might well be the signature sentiment animating this particular Dalit visual politics, a politics that does not have to bear the burden of maintaining authenticity, purity, and a commitment to a hallowed past that are essential to upper caste status. Paradoxically, the historically oppressed, as Kancha Ilaya reminds us, have a greater freedom to choose new symbols in the new global age, since they are pretty much not invested in a, path, in a past that has oppressed them. So does this particular Dalit immersion in a politics of what Aditya Nigam has called the here and the now free the followers of Chandraban Prasad from the clutches of what anthropologists Jill Rees and Urmila Mohan have called veneration nation, the recursive culture of adulatory practices and aesthetics that have acutely, that they have acutely identified as coursing through the long haul of India's history, and that is especially visible in the charged socio-political movements around Tamil Thai and Bharat Mata. The answer is not all that straightforward. In some of his writings, Prasad has clearly assigned the English goddess an important performative, even ritual role that is revealing of his larger aspirations regarding the future place of English in India, especially Dalit India. So he calls upon Dalit parents to show an image of the goddess English for a minute, as he puts it, to newborn Dalit infants. He then advises, and I'm quoting from this very long poem that is there on this poster that he has composed, but this is the verse I wanted to draw your attention to. Okay, go ahead, lean toward the baby, lean poetically, reach out the ears, First, the left ear, whisper now, A, B, C, D. Turn to the right, whisper, one, two, three, four. Enthralled, Goddess English has embraced the baby. On the 30th of April, 2010, the foundation stone for a new temple to the goddess English was laid in a schoolyard in Bankagaon, Lakhimpuri Khiri district in Eastern Uttar Pradesh, a village of about 8,000 souls, about 47% Dalit. 
In the words of journalist S. Anand, who attended the ceremony, quote, the chief priest was a suit clad Chandraban Prasad. The mantra chanted A, B, C, D. After a few crisp speeches in Hindi, emphasizing the need for English among Dalits and other oppressed groups, a 30-inch bronze idol was installed and a song composed by teachers of the school soared over the din. London se chal kar aayi, ye angrezi devi maya, computer wali maya, hey angrezi devi maya, hum sab ki devi maya, Janjan ki Devi Maya. She hails from London, this goddess English. She reigns over computers, hail goddess English. She's everybody's goddess. She's goddess of the people the world over. In my own discussions with Chandraban on this project, on this event, he noted that large numbers of Dalit women who attended the uh, event uh, immediately translated his English, the Dalit goddess, into Angrezi Devi Maya, and even started to offer her worship, as we see in these, some of these photographs from the moment. So I want to conclude by turning to the politics of affective embodiment that lies at the heart of India as veneration nation. And the pressure that puts on me as a professional historian, uh, even while I walk the tightrope that I spoke of earlier, relentlessly historicizing the, these figures as I go about my work, but also injecting the enchanted into my historical practice. In his autobiography, the man who would go on to become independent India's first prime minister famously worried over his fellow citizens' tendency to anthropomorphize, a tendency which he put down to the force of habit and early associations. This was clearly something that Nehru hoped we would get over in our march forward on the path of scientific and secular socialism, guided by the spectral and formless spirit of the nation. Quote, often as I look at this world, I have a sense of mysteries, of unknown depths. What the mysterious is, I do not know. I do not call it God, because God has come to mean much that I do not believe in. I find myself incapable of thinking of a deity or of any unknown supreme power in anthropomorphic terms. And that the fact that many people think so is continually a source of surprise to me." End quote. Many of us who came of age in Nehruvian India, and that certainly includes me, followed our first prime minister in our state of bemused suspicion at even hostility towards the anthropomorphic, the credulous and the idolatrous. And in our efforts to estrange ourselves from these in our own abstracted visions of a secular democratic socialist India. If historians are the paradigmatic narrators of such a secular socialist nation, no wonder then that the histories that we are trained to write fence off the agency of the godly and the more than the human, or at best translate it into the prosaic language of social science, as I've already noted. 
And yet, paradoxically, it is by becoming a professional academic that I've had to contend with and cohabit with some of these wondrous beings that no Neruvian citizen or secular historian would naturally wish for, but who press themselves upon me in ever proliferating ways. The philosopher of science, Bruno Latour, has most insistently reminded us that we live in times in which we are witness to a fabulous population of new images, fresh icons, rejuvenated mediators, greater flows of media, more powerful ideas, stronger idols. These modern goddesses who have entered my professional life are such stronger idols in whose mediated presence I have simultaneously felt both caught up and carried away experiencing a pleasurable feeling of being charmed by the novel and a more uncanny feeling of being disrupted or torn out of my default sensory psychic intellectual disposition. This, Jane Bennett tells me, is the overall effect of worldly enchantment. Quote, enchantment is something that we encounter that hits us. But it is also comportment that can be fostered through deliberate strategies. Such a comportment, she argues, enables us to develop an affective attachment to this world. It is an ethical aspiration, indeed critical obligation, which requires bodily movements in space, mobilizations of heat and energy, a series of choreographed gestures, a distinctive assemblage of affective propulsions. It is a comportment that prohibits us from slipping into the banal and the humdrum, or worse, lapsing into indifference and complacency, refusing to heed the need for secular salvation or calls for social justice. In Bennett's words, quote, the wager is that to some small but irreducible extent, one must be enamored with existence and occasionally even enchanted in the face of it in order to be capable of donating some of one's scarce mortal resources to the service of others." End quote. And so I have come to believe that history writing itself can and should be a deliberate strategy for such affective propulsion or ethical worldly enchantment, of which no one, however hard-bitten she or he may be, need feel ashamed. Quote, all we need to do is to immerse ourselves in the epiphanies of form taking place before our eyes, end quote. In this call to immerse myself in the epiphany of form, I hear the hail of the mother goddess, who over the long course of the subcontinent's history originating in the valley of the Indus in the third millennium BCE has been something of a scandal herself. Fierce, volatile, unpredictable, even becoming a weapon in the hands of illiberal forces as we have seen with the travails of Emma Hussein, but also playful, mischievous, compassionate, and alert to the pleas of the disenfranchised, the marginal, and the subaltern, as we have seen in the project of Chandraban Prasad. Not least, my entanglements with these diverse goddesses have taught me to seriously question my opening premise. 
cued by influential social theory that modernity ushers in the inevitable and necessary disenchantment of the world. Instead, what I have learned to recognize is that the enchanted figure of the goddess in all its complexity contends with rivaling regimes of enchantment with their own proclivities and passions, including those produced by being engaged in the work of worldly historical scholarship, which too has frequently held me spellbound and enthralled, prohibiting me from lapsing into indifference, holding out the promise of secular salvation in the service of others. As I bring my talk to a close, I cannot but help observing that just when I thought I was done with goddesses, I have been proven wrong yet again. As the world came to a standstill, literally in the early months of 2020 with the arrival of COVID-19 in our midst. In India, the spread of the novel coronavirus also precipitated the arrival of of a new goddess in the midst of its citizenry. Or to be more accurate, she is the adaptation of a recent goddess to the current moment, as Mother India takes on a completely new job as a slayer of disease and a protector against a pandemic. My colleague and friend Ravinder Kaur and I went off, we had to, on a hot pursuit of this new avatar in a paper we recently published from which I'm sharing some of these images on this slide. Her iconography, as you can tell, is still very unstable with elements borrowed from the old, the near new, and the entirely novel. As with her prototype, the new goddess too has her votaries who are all too willing to appropriate her for an illiberal Hindu nationalist cause, particularly dangerous at a time when the party in power is apparently battling the virus, uh, is also Hindu nationalist. But she has also drawn our attention to the role of the essential worker in hospitals and streets. Most importantly, in striking contrast to the ancestral disease Davies of the Indic landscape, the new goddess is not the deification of COVID-19, but a warrior summoned to destroy the disease. So as I draw my presentation to a close, I leave you with some of these images, among several others that may well be harbingers of more to come if I have learned to know my goddesses well. Thank you.